Welcome to the Visegrad Insight podcast on Central Europe from Central Europe. I'm Karolina Zbytniewska. I'm the editor-in-chief at Euroactive uh, Poland, uh, and I recommend to every one of you Visegrad Insight, but of course also Euroactive Poland. Stay tuned. <laughs> Hello, I'm Martin Grosdy, director of the Institute for Foreign Affairs and Trade of Budapest, Hungary, and check out Visegrad Insight's new website. Hello, my name is Marko Milosavljevic. I'm a professor of media studies and media politics from University of Ljubljana, and I'm the guest of this podcast, uh, which I like because it's part of Visegrad Insight, my favorite source of news and insights from Central and Eastern Europe. There you have it. Three fantastic guest speakers on today's episode. Um, this is uh, Visegrad Insight podcast, Wojciech Przybylski, 29th of June, 2021. Um, we are just at the end of the Polish presidency in the Visegrad group. Hungarian presidency begins on the 1st of July, 2021, along with the Slovenian presidency in the European Union. Um, this convergence of three countries that stay united on the ideological front in the European Union brings obvious questions as to the future of the Central European project, the directions, the priorities, and our guest speakers bring us closer to understanding the perspective of Poland, Hungary, and Slovenia in this very special moment. Hey, Karolina, so uh, welcome to Visegrad Insight podcast. I know that Visegrad uh, is not the only topic of Euroactive, but in fact, uh, you are uh, tracking Visegrad's uh, developments in Euroactive quite a lot. And so here's my question to you. I mean, we are just at the end of the Polish presidency in the Visegrad 4. What do you take out of it? Uh, 12 months of what a ride, COVID pandemic, what else? <laughs> What, what, what's your impression? Well, my impression is that, as you're saying, the pandemic might have a little bit uh, undermined uh, the Polish uh, efforts to be uh, very effective as a leader, uh, the, this annual leader of uh, Visegrad Group. However, uh, we tried uh, hard uh, the main uh, statement uh, uh, motto of our presidency was back on track, but sadly we have been uh, a little bit back on track of being a rogue country uh, and a leader of rogueness within the European Union of the centrifugal efforts of our uh, four countries uh, that are not so much in line with uh, the efforts, uh, dynamic ref efforts of uh, making by Brussels the Europe more, uh, more friendly to rule of law, liberal democracy, human rights and equalities. So uh, that's my uh, major impression is that we, uh, our countries, Poland has been very ambitious in uh, marking its uh, prioritizing of uh, the union of sovereign na nations as its, as its top uh, priority. However, it must be said that, uh, uh, that European Union is not against our sovereignty, but indeed there are different uh, opinions 
and a different uh, explanation of what uh, sovereignty is. Okay, so uh, that's that's the that's the essential uh, uh, you know summary of the Visegrad presidency of Poland. That also links, of course, to the current state of Polish foreign policy overall. It's not only during the V4 presidency, but then uh, looking, uh, you know, uh, uh, for the positive, let's say, uh, of, of the V4 presidency, what were the highlights? Uh, Poland had initially ambitions to put some f- uh, emphasis on security, on, on cooperation regarding security in V4. That was in the original plan of the presidency. And then it had to quickly revise the strategy, revise the presidency plan because of the COVID, uh, which hit us hard. And what what do you take out of it? I mean, what's um, what Poland did right still during the, the presidency? Um, of course. Uh, so uh, I would say that uh, despite uh, what I already mentioned, that sometimes our countries have troubles with uh, liberal democracy internally, uh, our four countries and uh, Poland uh, has been doing that throughout its presidency are very active in supporting democracy externally. So what I would mention as a major highlight uh, is the support for um, for the remnants of liberal democracy or for uh, for. Um, for pro-democratic movements and protesters in Belarus. It has been very important and very uh, very underlined by our countries, very uniform. Even Hungary, that is not always very um, supportive of uh, human rights, uh, pro-human rights uh, initiatives in the EU uh, towards foreign countries, uh, here with Belarus, or our Visegrad four countries were uh, in solidarity. Yeah, we could have seen that the Poland put all of its remaining weight, diplomatic weight, behind the initiative to, uh, what was the plan called again? Uh, German uh, German Marshall Fund for Belarus or something like that. And that was initiative put forward in the name of the whole Central Europe with a lot of coordination, much beyond Visegrad Group, with Lithuania, with Romanians backing, uh, backing it as well. And uh, and indeed, yes, I see it also as one of the highlights. Then very recently, in the last week, we had also Western Balkans um, uh, meeting in Poznan, right? So I, I think these two directions on neighborhoods seem to be complementary, don't you think? Yes, uh, uh, what binds us, I was thinking what binds us as a Visegrad uh, group and we are all supportive, uh, as I said, to external efforts for democracy and uh, as part of this uh, support, it's also the support for um, enlargement of the European Union. Uh, of course, our uh, our country, uh, Poland, is looking more into its strategic uh, Eastern uh, partnership uh, because of our major strategic, uh, ri- maybe not rival, uh, more enemy, which is Russia, while other countries may be more supportive of uh, the enlargement into the Balkans, although uh, the support for the enlargement uh, is uh, what binds us, what binds us definitely. 
uh, what also binds uh, us is uh, when I was thinking about it, um, the progressiveness of our uh, capital cities, which is often which which is uh, a united um, united power, united uh, energy that uh, that is more more pro progressive, more pro liberal, uh, but at the same uh, time it's very much in the opposition to the general national uh, policies of our countries. Uh, which is good and bad at the same uh, time, because, uh, of course, the conservative uh, policies represented on the government level represent uh, huge parts of our societies. However, there are other parts of the societies. Usually more and more nations have suffered from this uh, binary divide 50-50, so the the other part of uh, Polish and not only Polish society uh, is uh, more liberal, more open to uh, minorities, sexual minorities, uh, to environmental efforts, and so on. So uh, both kinds, both uh, types of electorate have their representatives, uh, which is a little bit funny, but it's the reality. So uh, one part has rep representatives on the governmental level, while the other on the capital progressive level. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the yin yang of Visegrad. There is there there. This is the other. Uh, the this is the rediscovery of Visegrad. The other Visegrad exists exists indeed. Um, despite best efforts of Viktor Orban and, and uh, Jaroslav Kaczynski, along with Mr. Morawiecki, uh, but also along with Andrei Babish, we have to say, to trump uh, the original message of civil society cooperation, uh, European integration with, with various other messages. And, and here was, uh, what, there was one, right? There was one on migration. That was the, the big card of the Visegrad uh, group to oppose um, inflow of people to the European Union, especially through the external border, that seemed to be uniting factor. But it seems, as you just were pointing out, uh, that today it's more on family and LGBT, uh, uh, LGBT plus. That that seems to be the new agenda of V4. Um, there was a there was even a conference under the Polish presidency of V4 on a theme of how to support traditional family model. Did you notice? Uh, well, uh, what I also noticed was when I went to Budapest to the uh, to the national uh, museum, and the main uh, at the entrance there was this uh, introduction for all the visitors, uh, saying that the most important value of the Hungarian society is family. I'm not saying that it's not or anything like that but it's the national museum that uh, just somehow starts uh, the trip of the tourist with this uh, statement which is uh, in my view quite uh, incredible that's why i still uh, remember it and yes uh, it's uh, our agenda although i don't i wouldn't say that all of our countries are as 
inclined to make all uh, sociological efforts around family and uh, maybe also church uh, more in Poland as uh, really major priorities. Uh, But here, of course, uh, Poland and Hungary are leading and other countries uh, within the Visegrad, uh, Czech Republic and uh, Slovakia are here a little bit more uh, distanced. Well, funny observation that you made about the museum. I I thought that you usually put uh, in the museum things that are obsolete uh, in a way, out of out of order. Any uh, well, but then you can find a Hungarian family model there as well. Um, Carolina, finally, um, two additional topics, and let's close and wrap up uh, the summary of the presidency. One topic that we were expecting to be there, but somehow it got lost in the sidelines of the pandemic uh, crisis uh, and the Recovery Resilience Fund, which is the Future of Europe conference. I wonder if there were any undertones during the Polish presidency, and definitely we can expect some undertones on the future of Europe from the from, from the upcoming Hungarian presidency. So this is topic number one. And then the second one that came up surprisingly very, very late after last week uh, visits uh, of Joe Biden to Uh, to Europe G7 initiative on taxation. I don't know if you want to pick on any of those two. Uh, Go ahead. Uh, Yeah, I guess future of Europe. That's that's the one that will energize us. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, So a conference on the future of Europe. Um, So it's a very important potentially initiative uh, joint uh, of uh, the major EU institutions, European Parliament, European Uh, Commission and the European uh, Council and uh, all the um, citizens and but also institutions like think tanks but also governments uh, basically everyone can uh, can provide their proposals their input on how the EU might uh, further uh, integrate and uh, develop so from the side of Poland, of course, citizens have their different varying views. But the, as I read also your article uh, um, for Politico, uh, and uh, I totally agree with that, that uh, our governments might uh, be keen on hijacking this uh, initiative by uh, setting off their troll armies that have been already in use in past elections in order to uh, to give uh, overproportionate um, uh, overproportionate stress on uh, centrifugal anti uh, anti integrational eurosceptical uh, agendas so that's the problem and uh, when i'm talking to uh, to politicians euro uh, euro um, members of european parliament uh, they all often mention that that might be a problem this disinformation uh, that is being uh, 
uh, is being inflown into the Conference on the Future of uh, Europe uh, initiative. But this problem of uh, governments, of being a part of the problem, no, not of the solution, uh, that we should be aware of and uh, the European Union should uh, try at least to somehow moderate uh, its uh, the messages being input via their um, conferences platforms. Well, we'll see in a couple of months uh, how did how well did it go, and whether actually Viktor Orban and Mateusz Morawiecki are managing to hijack the conference on the future of Europe. So far, we have seen only yesterday. Uh, we're recording this uh, interview on the 29th of June, and only yesterday we've seen uh, a massive um, advertising campaign on behalf of Viktor Orban in across different European papers advancing his seven-point plan on the future of Europe. Uh, that includes what you mentioned. I mean, that uh, we need to include Serbia in the EU on one side, but basically we need to dismantle most of the EU institutions at the same time. Indeed, it's uh, fascinating, uh, this uh, tendency uh, that uh, our governments at the same time are uh, so uh, having such troubles with uh, de democracies um, internally, but still supportive of uh, demo demo pro-democratization forces outside. And as such, we could see Serbia being um, accepted someday to the European Union, although we must also look at Serbian society itself, which uh, is wary of uh, becoming an EU member. I think it's one of the most split societies among the EU potential candidates as far as the European integration is concerned. It's about half-half. So usually uh, other societies uh, really wish for EU integration and they find the EU as the final, ultimate and only hope for their nations to, to start to develop and thrive, for example, uh, like uh, we see in northern, uh, in North uh, Macedonia. But Serbia, they are okay uh, as, as they are. So, uh, so it's interesting really that uh, Orban is uh, holding such a campaign despite Serbia is not that interested in uh, application. In, sorry, in integration. Okay. Karolina, thanks so much. Thanks for uh, joining our podcast episode. And uh, you'll read more from her uh, in Euroactive. Thank you very much. We're switching capitals now, connecting to Marton Ugrosti from Budapest. What is going to be the main motive, the main highlight, in your opinion, of the upcoming or the beginning of the Visegrad presidency of Hungary? Well, I guess two things at least. Uh, the first is something that nobody has control over, and that's whether there's going to be a fourth wave in the pandemic. And obviously, if there will be one, then uh, what we have on paper at the moment and what we will see in reality might be a bit different. Uh, but if there won't be a fourth wave or it's not going to be as high as some might fear, then I think most of it will be about reopening uh, the economy, reopening the borders, and of course, um, seeing that how this will fit into the larger European perspective. 
Okay. And how do you th- how is that going to be achieved? I mean, in what ways Hungary is going to advance the topics that three other partners will be on board with the European agenda in mind? I think, first of all, it's important to look at what might happen in Brussels and the different European fora. And I think that will be the key. Uh, On the one hand, structurally, there hasn't been much change in the economic setup of Central Central Europe. Um, Germany is still our largest and most important trading partner. We still do not trade with each other. Uh, I mean, the V4 countries as we should. there is no high-speed rail from Warsaw to Budapest at the moment being built. So uh, that way, I think um, the challenges are more or less the same. So basically, we have postponed uh, answering many questions because of the pandemic. And that's completely justifiable because we had a larger crisis to solve. But at the moment, it seems like that uh, the pandemic might be under control. Vaccination rates are going up in all the EU member states. Uh, on July the 1st, uh, the new EU green card will be launched, so we might go abroad to take a holiday if all goes well. I'm not going, but others will. Um, so that way, I think reopening will become an issue. And part of that is on the regulatory side, part of that connects the future of Europe. But on the other hand, uh, you have some very pragmatic issues, like for how long you will have controls on the Schengen borders and how you can lift these uh, as soon as possible. Okay, speaking about the numbers and economy, um, what's the perspective from Hungary and overall, maybe if you have some data on the region? I mean, what are we talking about when it comes to economy? I think the biggest question here is that how and when there's going to be a rebound in the economy. Uh, all the estimates I've been looking at have been very promising, uh, starting from the European Commission to the IMF, of course, to the old national estimates. Uh, you might have heard that the Hungarian government proposed that if the economic growth this year will be higher than 5.5%, there will be a rebate in personal income tax for those raising kids. Now. I'm not a political strategist, but I wouldn't make a promise like that if I didn't know how the numbers might look like at the end of the year. So I guess uh, Hungary might be doing well. Uh, we might be seeing great numbers. But also, if, if we look at the other, V4, uh, the other three V4 countries, I think uh, there, there are good prospects. Uh, we already see that unemployment is still not being an issue, despite the fact that many jobs have been terminated because of of the pandemic, also in the services sector, tourism, uh, in these industries. But somehow, I mean, at least in Hungary, we're not seeing unemployment rising very very steadily and very quickly. Uh, What we see is that we already have a labor shortage in some of the sectors. Of course, I'm not saying that, you know, all the sectors are doing equally well. and, you know, there's people standing in lines to become waiters and cooks and these kind of things. But uh, generally speaking, the situation is not as bad as everybody suspected it to be last year. And I think that applies to Poland, that applies to the Czech Republic, and that applies to Slovakia as well. Um, so in that regard, the future looks bright if all will turn out in a good way. And once again, the fourth wave is, is something here that we cannot estimate at the moment and which can turn this upside down as soon as September, but we'll see. 
Okay, let's look at the challenges then. I mean, uh, turbulence is upcoming uh, for mostly, if not because of economy, which we seem to be betting, I think both of us, so there is no point of arguing uh, that economy is going to be a difficult topic. But on the political turmoil, looking at political turmoil, we see elections coming up in Hungary during this presidency. There is the conference on the future of Europe. And there are some political uh, clashes, even, you would say, well, divisions within the V4. So I'm picking your brain on all three, and then maybe we can we can dwell in, in individually on some of those. First of all, we always had the V4 presidency in an election year so far, because we never had early elections. So that way, uh, this is a this is a given. And not surprisingly, all the governments who've been uh, presiding over the V4 have been trying to use this to their own electoral gains. Having said that, foreign policy is not something that most of the voters are concerned about. Uh, so the gains might be there, but they're, they're not a game changer for sure. The Conference on the Future of Europe is an interesting one. Um, some say that uh, you might have a result even before it gets started. But hopefully this will be a real consultation with the citizens as well, even though I don't think that uh, we can expect huge wonders when it comes to the final outcome. Partly it's very bureaucratized in a sense that there are so many stakeholders, so many structures that, you know, it's, it's constructed in a way that you can say anything in the end that it will be justified because somebody would have said that already. Um, but I think it's interesting. Um, the Hungarian government clearly has an ambition to shape the debate, um, but we're only one country out of 27. Um, we're a nation of 10 million people out of a political union of 500 million people. So I think there are some structural limitations of, of what we can possibly achieve. Uh, the third one was the... Uh, well, the state of V4 as we see it, mm -hmm. uh, which sometimes seems like a very effective, pragmatic cooperation. And sometimes there is a, there is a demonstration of some disagreements, which is actually fine with, I mean, within every neighborhood you have those, but still um, there, uh, there are always these questions popping up, how much Czechia and Slovakia is on board or providing counterbalance to the Hungarian Polish initiatives or any other configuration there there might be in V4. Mm -hmm. I think uh, we shouldn't think about the V4 as a as a you know exclusive club. Of course, it is because uh, enlargement is not on the table, but it's an exclusive club where you have to agree on every single issue, regardless whether that is within your national interest or not. Um, so all inclusive, uh, in a way. All you would inclusive. Say. It's yeah, not yeah. all inclusive. It's <laughs> not all inclusive. Uh, by the way, the EU is not inclusive either, despite the fact that many of the European leaders would like to see it so. But the point is that I think the V4 has been very utilitarian all along the way, and I think part of the reason that it's still around is is this kind of utilitarian approach that it was used uh, for objectives, for goals which were mutually beneficial for all the four or three countries earlier, but we were not really picking each other on those issues where, where there's no agreement. Uh, we could name many of these in foreign policy, but I think if it comes to taxation, if it comes to the digital economy, if it comes to environmental protection, reducing carbon emissions, 
uh, a point where Poland is, is a bit of an outlier, so just to not to pick hungry all the time, then we see that we just accept that, you know, there's a diversity of views and we do not pick a fight on that. There might be internal deliberations. There might be meetings on the expert levels, on the ministerial level, uh, on many, there are many different layers. But, you know, I think the other three countries are more or less completely fine with the Polish government to decarbonize as they see fit. And as uh, it fits into the uh, competitiveness and a sustainability agenda of the Polish government, whatever political color that Polish government might have. Okay, so to be specific, I see the clash on the rule of law, which Hungary is also keen to heat up. Of course, Hungarian officials say that it's the whatever Dutch or other um, EU partners which are heating up the debate. But definitely there is a conflict on the on the line, on the rule of law, to which Slovakia and Czechia do not want to subscribe. How do you do you think that that would be even an issue within the Hungarian presidency? There are some topics that could be touching upon this. And let's have it in mind that the rule of law in the European perspective is not just judicial system, but this is a kind of a broader set of um, items uh, that are being put on the on the table. So that's that's on the let's say, di- diversification of V4 question? Um, once again, the V4 is not united on all, on all the fronts, and the rule of law issue might be one of these, despite the fact that there's some kind of uh, paternalizing element on this issue from the older member states, even though I hate to call them older and newer member states, but those, the founding member states, if you wish, the Western Europeans. Uh, so I think this question doesn't only apply to, to Poland and Hungary, but this is a more general issue between how we understand democracy and both parts of the European, or the two ends of the European Union. And I think this is not surprising because of the different historical baggage. It's not surprising because of the different political cultures. It's not surprising because people relate to the state in a different way in Estonia and Poland and Hungary and Romania, Bulgaria, the Netherlands and so on and so forth. So even we are using the same terms, these same terms might have a different meaning in all but, of the member states. But sorry to interrupt you here, mm-hmm. Martin, but I think the clash is also within the V4 between, let's say, Slovakia and Poland or Slovakia and Hungary on that question, because there is a different strategy vis-a-vis Europe and and the European Dictionary of Rule of Law. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, um, of course, national governments are completely legitimate to have their own point of view on this. So I'm not really expecting that, you know, there will be a hot and contested debate between the Slovakian government and the Polish government on rule of law issues. They might have played these games on the European level, but I do not really see this coming up in the V4 context. Um, So looking at the presidency program, for example, this is not in there. Of course, it's part of the uh, Conference on the Future of Europe agenda item to some extent. And I think it's important that we talk about these questions and uh, talk a lot about these questions, to be very honest. But once again, the the presidency program is something that all the four countries have to agree on. So not surprisingly, the conflicting items are not on on that list. 
And how about the family, uh, because there was an initiative on the side of uh, Poland, and there was the question of family policy. I think the V4 came together, mm -hmm. and it turned out to be also somehow linked to more polarizing. It had a polarizing effect, if you look at the broader side of things, despite family being rather, well, you know, otherwise seemingly neutral uh, topic. But uh, there is a strong agenda, and as we see LGBT Q, uh, or LGBT plus uh, uh, rights, minority rights. This is also something that might be coming up in uh, in the in the next months. Does Hungary plan to take on board the family policy on the V4 agenda? I think uh, it will be part of that. The ambition level is something that you have to calibrate because. Um, I think there is a bit of a different understanding of solving the demographic problems of, of Europe on the west and the east of the continent. And I think the Central European approach to this is somewhat different from what we see in France or the Netherlands or in other countries. Of course, um, if we talk about the V4 context, the lowest common denominator will be something which all the four countries can subscribe to. So I wouldn't expect even this family policy component to be to be very divisive on the, on the V4 level. On the national level, that's a different set of set of political game, I would say. So you see that the Hungarian government, for example, has put out a very robust uh, family support policy in the last, uh, let's say, six to seven years. And like it or not, uh, this is something which has been consistently part of government policy making and the numbers are not looking so bad. Of course, you know, fertility rates are not skyrocketing from one year to another, but there's a bit of a movement in the right direction. Now the Polish government might have uh, a similar understanding of this, but the Polish government is, is, is in office at the moment and they might be out of office uh, out of office the other day. So this is a largely political question that whether you, and how you would like to support traditional families, if you wish. Um, I guess there's not going to be elections in Poland next year, right? God knows. Well, okay. We'll see. <laughs> we, <laughs> we will see. see. We will see. But um, usually, a major policy shifts in family policy usually comes with a change of the government. But I think the basic understanding that the family is still the cornerstone of society and so on and so forth, these are largely shared across the V4 countries mostly because of our similar and common historical heritage. Fine. Last question, Martin. Um, uh, a week ago, we had a meeting of finance ministers of V4. And one of the topics, one of the big topics for the upcoming months, definitely Hungarian V4 presidency, will be the initiative of G7 of the taxation uh, of, a, of a common denominator for a uh, for taxation on multi, uh, multinational companies or global companies. Um, how much of that topic do you see is going to be on the actual, even if not public agenda, but really in the, in the coordinated positions of the V4? I think this will come up very quickly and very early uh, because uh, if you look at the competitiveness of these countries, it, the V4, it mostly comes from the favorable tax regimes that these countries have been running. So Hungary has had the lowest corporate income tax rate in, in, in the entire Europe for a long time. 
not counting the tax havens, of course, that's a different question. I think on the one hand, it would be important to have some kind of regulation of these uh, global companies. And I think many of the V4 governments could also subscribe to the fact that there has to be some kind of public control over companies like Facebook and, and the others. Uh, partly because most of their operations concern political reality, personal freedoms, uh, whether you own your data or whether you just give it for free to these uh, global providers. And I think what the European Union is doing in this regard is very encouraging. So in that instance, in digital sovereignty, I really do not see that the V4 countries might be far apart from the European Union in that instance. But will V4 coordinate on OSCD negotiations about this? I think they will. Um, of course, the V4 as, as a cooperation format is not only about the foreign ministers, not only about the prime ministers, but also the finance ministers, the agricultural ministers, and so on and so forth. And what I see is that this uh, global minimum corporate income tax is something that concerns all of our economies. So I would expect that the four finance ministers, when they come together, because they would come together anyway, uh, this will be one of the most important items on their agenda. All right. Looking forward to see how it develops. Thanks so much. Thank you. Take part in shaping Visegrad Insights' future topics, podcasts, and discussions. Join one of our special editorial board meetings and help us shape the future of Visegrad Insight. Check your mailbox. And if you haven't received an invitation yet, become one of our annual subscribers. Welcome back after the break. We're connecting now to Ljubljana, Slovenia, where Marko Milosavljevic is telling us what are his expectations of the upcoming uh, Slovenian presidency in the European Union. The Slovenian presidency begins on the 1st of July. In a way, it's difficult to tell because uh, unlike many other countries who take over the presidency of the Council of European Union, in a sort of routine-like way. Um, Slovenia is and has been for the last year, but especially in the past few months, the center of attention of Europe, uh, but also world. Uh, I would say for some wrong reasons. Wrong reasons simply in the sense that Slovenia used to deal with democracy, with politics and many other aspects of transition from socialism to, let's say, very successful country member of European Union and NATO with relative peace and calm. And now in the last year, we have seen a lot of tension. We have seen a lot of aggression, uh, both at the domestic political scene, but unfortunately also at the international scene. We have seen uh, criticism and I would say verbal attacks by Slovenian prime minister at a number of European commissioners. We have seen individual attacks on individual politicians from European Union, such as, such as Guy Verhofstadt from Belgium and Sophie Intel from Netherlands. In addition to that, um, our prime minister also used that opportunity to attack not just individual politicians, but also the whole countries where these politicians come from, such as Belgium and Netherlands. 
and this is a behavior that we are not sort of used to in Slovenia. We don't appreciate it. Obviously, a number of people and a large percent of people don't appreciate it. And we think that it's a sort of um, bad luggage in a way uh, for for us as a country while we're taking over the presidency of the European Union. We see that as a wrong message of and wrong values that we seem to promote with that kind of behavior. But on the official um, program of the presidency, looks rather promising. There isn't anything that I would say um, is, is raising eyebrows. There is the Conference on the Future of Europe listed as the first priority next to resilience and recovery, which is already evergreen through COVID um, because of the COVID situation. But then there is a Conference on the Future of Europe. Then there is uh, the next one is the European way of life uh, on the with, with perspectives on the rule of law, equal criteria for all, and uh, the question on the rule of law. And um, the third one is uh, neighborhood, uh, credible and secure European Union, security, stability in its neighborhood that primarily concerns Western Balkans that from Central European perspective also will include definitely uh, the Eastern partnership. So it seems, um, you know, on the diplomatic language, on the messages of uh, the government, not of the particular politician, namely the prime minister, it doesn't look like a revolutionary um, approach, or is it? Um, I, I would say that the, the devil is, of course, in the details. Um, we can have a conference on the rule of law, but if we acknowledge that Slovenian government uh, actually was critical of the principle of the rule of law and tended to agree with both Poland and Hungary when it came to this principle, that it's that it's a sort of Western European principle, that it's not at home in Central and Eastern Europe, then we, of course, have a problem. I mean, you can have a title of the conference on, let's say, uh, neighborhood or the rule of law or democracy and tolerance and so on. But then it's a question, what do you define as tolerance, for example? I mean, there won't be a conference on tolerance, and I think it would be quite ironic to have that sort of um, discussion with the current government which is well known for a number of very intolerant messages, particularly tweets, um, but also articles in their media uh, that this government is owning as the parties own a couple of, of news outlets. Uh, but in principle, you know, of course, it's, it's not, a, in a way, it's not a, a problem to, to give a title to the conference, whatever you want to call it. But once you come to the principles, uh, then you see... Uh, the rift. Then you see also the problem with, for example, current discussions about the condemnation of Hungary and its uh, attitude towards LGBT uh, and the, the, the law that was adopted by Hungarian parliament. Uh, Slovenia was one of the countries, I mean, uh, 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 the only one in, in addition to, to Poland that, that did not um, condemn this legislation from Hungary. And that actually sort of confirmed its stance together with Viktor Orban also, also unfortunately, on this issue. Uh, so, yes, the titles can be fine. The discussions uh, will very likely be relatively fine. It depends on the nature of the people who will be invited. Uh, but, for example, let me give you an example of the current celebration of the Slovenian uh, independence. Uh, in addition from to a representative of European 
uh, there was only Viktor Orban from Hungary. And in addition to that, there were representatives of Catholic Church and Lord's Prayer was being said at a state celebration. Uh, and that is, of course, uh, unacceptable in a country where there is a constitutional division between the church and the politics. And so we see similar tendencies as we see in Poland, Hungary, or let's say also Serbia. Well, in case of Poland, although we have some uh, divisiveness and the, the godly references in the um, political uh, culture are quite common or have been quite common. Actually, we are going now, it seems, against that current with the uh, with a change in the society that is rebelling about, uh, against uh, corrupt practices and and also um, other types of abuse. Um, but uh, back to Slovenia and, and the questions of, of neighborhood. I mean, countries, uh, many countries, uh, Portugal and, and others as well, uh, which were presiding in the EU, often are not uh, elevating the presidency that much because they don't have either ambition or the potential as countries to host all the events. And then EU institutions are uh, playing much more important part in organizing the presidency and the events. Uh, but still, what do you expect of the you know key events or uh, meetings uh, in Slovenia to take place? Anything, any topic of, of, of particular interest to follow, to, to look ahead? Um, I, I can imagine when topics will be touching, you know, or they will be touched by the European Parliament on the free media. That definitely, will 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 see some new show, and we have uh, we have seen one recently by Prime Minister. In uh, he was he was trying to um, play a video he made. Uh, but uh, anything else? Any anything to you know? You would be making a um, list of recommended uh, watch for. Um, with this sort of government, um, I'm, literally anything is possible. And this, of course, also provides a very unstable environment. I mean, for example, you mentioned neighborhood. Uh, this is a topic where Slovenia should have, let's say, good references, simply in the sense that it has historically had a relatively or well uh, relationship with government of uh, Northern Macedonia, Kosovo, Montenegro, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Serbia, and Croatia. Uh, we've had, of course, some issues, particularly, for example, regarding Croatia's border. But apart from that, uh, we are probably sort of uh, a country that relatively peacefully binds together a number of uh, other um, other um, Western Balkans country. But we, we have seen in the past few months that uh, a non-paper that was attributed to Slovenian government actually caused probably the greatest tension and almost a conflict or at least a sort of verbal conflict between a number of countries and diplomats uh, when it came to the idea of shifting, changing borders in the Balkans. Uh, and that was, of course, a highly controversial topic and approach. So, you know, even with this sort of topics that seem relatively safe and that seem sort of that could be a sort of continuation of things without a very specific or controversial agenda, we can see uh, we can see a very uh, 
aggressive or controversial reactions, discussions, and, and so on. So not just, of course, our government has a very specific approach to media, um, to, the, to the rule of law, to non-government organizations. Um, it is uh, uh, clearly following a number of paths also, uh, just like Hungary and also Poland, but also some other countries when it comes to the issue of human, of human rights, of LGBT, of uh, refugees and many other aspects of human rights. Um, but so, so, you know, you can, I mean, it's very safe to, to predict that there will be some controversies about these sort of topics, perhaps not so much with dealing with economic crisis, perhaps not so much with dealing with the recovery from COVID, but apart from that, everything is open. And there you have it, three important presidencies of three very important Central European countries. Poland, Hungary and Slovenia, Karolina Zbytniewska, Marton Ugrosdy, Marko Milosavlevich and truly yours. Marysia Czupka, Wojciech Przybylski, Wysegradin Sai Podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. 